Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Yesterday, I broke the news to you. I mean, I'm sure it was welcome news to some of you that uh, Patrick J. Buchanan, one of the most influential and widely read columnists in this country over the course of the last half century, decided to retire. And I said yesterday, I played for you what uh, Chris Matthews said on MSNBC when Pat was fired from MSNBC in 2012. And I agree with every word Chris Matthews said there. And I thought it was a brilliant commentary that he that he put together. And I enjoyed a lot of the clips that he played. I'm not going to play it for you again now. But if you didn't get to hear us talking about that yesterday, you can go to my Facebook page. It's on there, facebook.com slash Fan. He has retired. Pat Buchanan, three-time presidential candidate, advisor to three presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, uh, and uh, somebody that has had an incredible influence on shaping the country as it is today. He has retired from his syndicated column. And it's so interesting to me that so many of the things that he warned about, whether it's reckless free trade, whether it's uh, cultural issues, whether it's uh, getting involved in foreign wars, that these have all come to fruition. And in a lot of the way, a lot of ways, the sort of center-right populist fervor that he stoked 30, 40, 50 years ago, it did really lay the groundwork for Donald Trump. I mean, I think these days, um, people look at his speech at the 1992 Republican convention And uh, look at it as the beginning of a new era in populist conservatism. You remember that speech, right? Pat was heavily criticized for it. George H.W. Bush. Now, remember what was going on in 1992. A lot of conservatives wanted an alternative to George H.W. Bush. They were upset with him for raising taxes, which at the time was the largest tax increase in American history. A lot of conservatives were upset with him for the Gulf War. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people were upset with him for a variety of other reasons. His handling of the uh, Iran Contra affair, along with Reagan, a number of other issues that people took issue with. I don't want to relitigate the politics of 1992, but a lot of folks were looking for a, a lot of people upset with his advocacy for NAFTA and free trade. A lot of conservatives were looking for an alternative, and they found one in Pat Buchanan. Now think of that, Pat Buchanan, who was a friend of George Bush, going back years, knew George Bush going back to the 70s, maybe even the 60s. He took the mantle of the center-right, actually nothing center about it, the right-leaning opposition to George H.W. Bush. And he gave George H.W. Bush a sitting incumbent president, quite a scare. He got about 36% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary against the sitting president, which was unheard of at the time. So George Bush and the Republican Party realized, whoa, wait a minute. There is something to this Pat Buchanan's appeal. and We better give him a speaking spot at our convention. And they did. And 30 years later, to this day, people still debate whether it was the right move for the Republicans to allow Pat Buchanan on television and prime time to say a speech that was fiery, that included lines like this. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. But this war is for the soul of America. 
And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. Now, I was really only involved in one election in which Pat uh, ran in, and that was the 2000 election, and I uh, worked against him. I was not for him. I've regretted that. I uh, because I look at the things that he was warning about in the 90s and in 2000, and I think, uh, my goodness, had we gone down a Pat Buchanan-esque path, this country would have been in a much better place. And um, one of the things, and I've gotten to know Pat a bit over the years, and I like Pat very much, the esteem that I have for him as an intellectual is only exceeded by the esteem that I have for him as a person. And I don't know him well. We've never uh, gone out to dinner or anything. Uh, We've met in person a a handful of times. Um, We were trying to make arrangements to go out to dinner, and then the coronavirus pandemics shut the whole world down. I'm going to try and go out and see him uh, sometime soon. But um, I've always been so impressed with Pat's character. And that 1992 election is a perfect example of that. In 1992, keep in mind, any other politician would have tried to score points with the right wing, which was Pat's whole base, his only strategy to maybe getting the nomination, any way they could. Not Pat Buchanan. For instance, George H.W. Bush had always been pro-choice until 1980 when Ronald Reagan and Reagan's team calls Bush up and says, you want to be on the ticket? Well, if you do... Right now, you better become pro-life. And George H.W. Bush switched, instantly became pro-life. His wife, Barbara Bush, remained pro-choice. And I think, um, you know, Bush's brother, who was active in politics at the time, Bush's brother, remained pro-choice. But Bush himself switched. Now, if you're Pat Buchanan and you're running uh, on a total social conservative platform, pro-life, anti-abortion as could be, wouldn't you use that? Buchanan, to his credit, did not. He never brought up the issue of abortion, uh, other than to say he was a a champion for the unborn. He never criticized Bush for having been pro-choice. And I'd ask him about that in private as well. And I'd heard other interviews, and he's written about it in his books, and I've read all of his books. And he said, it wouldn't be fair for me to do that because as president, whatever his personal beliefs were, they were. But as president, he governed like a pro-life president. So how could I criticize him on that when legislatively and in terms of picks that he tried to make to the Supreme Court, they were the kind of picks that I would make. And I I thought that was a very principled position. Now, I know we have a lot of younger listeners and uh, they may not be familiar with the heyday of Pat Buchanan's political career or his media career, which goes back to the 1960s. And they might be wondering, how did he get started? Where did he come from? How did somebody who was born in Washington, D.C., who came from a Democratic family, how did he come to symbolize the voice of the fiery populist right? Well, he was on C-SPAN, I think in 1988, promoting his book right from the beginning, which is a wonderful book. I, I don't know that I could pick a favorite of Pat Buchanan's books, but if I had to pick one that can sum up who Pat is and how he came to be, it's right from the beginning. And it's kind of a triple pun. It's right from the beginning because, in his view, he's correct, so he's right. It's right from the beginning because he's conservative, and it's right from the beginning because it starts at the beginning of his life. It's very clever, the whole book. And he talked in this interview on C-SPAN that he was doing promoting the book about how he became a conservative. I started to think back on why I believed as I did, why I was different than other individuals in terms of what I felt and thought and argued. And so I decided to, uh, to think back and try to find out the sources of my own beliefs. And when I did, I found very quickly, I went right through the fact that I'd read a lot of conservative books when I was an editorial writer, or James Burnham, or even Buckley's Magazine and the rest of it. And I found out that I'd been a conservative when I came to those publications. In other words, you picked them up and you agreed with what you were reading. And so I had to go back further, and you sort of went back into your roots. And I guess I sort of picked it up by osmosis and sort of accepted a lot of things I were taught, which were conservative and traditionalist, and came to affirm and accept those values and beliefs. Now, 
1992 was just the beginning of Pat's foray into presidential politics. Because keep in mind what was going on in Pat's life at the time, right? Or where he was in his life at the time. He was Nixon's senior aide. He was probably the only guy in the Nixon administration that was with him from the very beginning of the campaign until Nixon's last day in office. And then he stayed and worked in the Ford administration as well. Then... Um, Reagan brought him back as communications director, and he had an eyewitness vantage point for some of the most significant newsworthy events of the 1980s, including the Challenger explosion. I mean, imagine being an eyewitness to presidential history under everything that happened in the Nixon era, under everything that happened or many things that happened in the Ford era. His chief of staff, uh, Dick Cheney, was pretty eager to get Pat Buchanan out, as you might imagine, and uh, through many of the things that happened in the Reagan era. So 1992, he gives a sitting president quite a scare. 1996, there's no Republican incumbent. So it's a wide open field. Bob Dole it was sort of perceived that it was his turn, but a lot of people were inspired by Pat. Pat does even better in 1996. He doesn't just get 36% of the vote in New Hampshire. He wins New Hampshire and gives uh, gives Bob Dole and Phil Graham and the Republican establishment quite a run for his money when he's running for president, seeking the Republican nomination in 1996. You see the Bill Clinton State of the Union? His character, Imus, Imus in the morning guy, I'd heard said, Bill Clinton gave a great speech. I think Pat Buchanan wrote it. Look, here's a guy who's going to take over the entire health care system with the misses, 15 percent of the economy, and put it under big government. And he's up there saying in the State of the Union, the era of big government is over. Clinton 96 is running against Clinton 93. It's a great debate. That isn't all what he's talking about. He's now talking about, we got to do something about illegal immigration in this country. Got to crack down. He's building a fence along the border. Buchanan Clinton fence along the border. I'm not kidding. They've got a border defense going up, these guys. He also said, we've got to get prayer now back in the public schools. This is Bill Clinton. This guy is shameless. You know, as I said, you know, he moves from one position to another, depending on this, this, this guru he's got. In the polls, in the focus groups, he's like a blind dog in a meat market. Just going from one to the other to the other. And I think Pat made a very good point there, and so did I miss, which is that Pat's commentary and his columns and the work that he did as a speechwriter under both Nixon and Reagan, it really did influence not just the Republican Party, but the mainstream of American politics, including Bill Clinton. Do you remember how conservative uh, Clinton became in the mid-90s when there was a Republican Congress and he had to find a way to get uh, credit for what Newt Gingrich was passing in Congress? They called it uh, triangulation. It was a Dick Morris strategy. And a lot of what Pat said was right. He did very well in 96. Not enough to win. And unlike 92, Bob Dole, uh, by the way, uh, Pat had told me many times over the years that he was a little disappointed that after New Hampshire, Alan Keyes and Bob Dornan and the other social conservatives stayed in the race because it made it very difficult for him to win because a lot of the social conservative uh, vote was uh, was split. And um, one of the things that occurred in 1996 is the Republican establishment said, we are not going to allow Pat Buchanan to uh, speak at our convention. We are absolutely not going to allow him to do the same thing in 96 and portray our candidate Bob Dole as a tool of right-wing extremists the way they were able to do with George H.W. Bush. So they didn't let him speak in 96. They gave his speaking spot to Christine Todd Whitman. And that le- that made Pat... By the way, the last thing I'll mention about his 92 candidacy... Um, So many people, and we'll get back to this in a second, so many people have sought to portray Pat Buchanan as a racist over the years. He's not a racist. So many people have sought to portray Pat Buchanan as an anti-Semite over the years. He's not an anti-Semite. And one of the things that Pat did in 1992, people forget, you know who else was running for president in 1992 uh, other than George Bush and Ross Perot and Bill Clinton? David Duke. David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, was running for president against Pat Buchanan. And um, he repudiated David Duke everywhere he went. In fact, the kind of repudiation that he gave against David Duke is something I would have liked to have heard a little bit more from Donald Trump. 
years later. Um, in fact, David Duke tried to come up to him one time uh, when they were both campaigning and shake his hand. Buchanan refused to shake his hand and just said, goodbye, David. That was the only words he said. Goodbye, David. 1996, Buchanan's insulted and his supporters are insulted. He runs again, 2000, open seat, and it's clear the Republicans are rigging this whole process for George W. Bush, the son of Pat's 1992 nemesis. And Pat sees no path for him to get the Republican nomination. He chooses to leave the GOP and run and seek the nomination of the Reform Party in the year 2000. Now, seriously, friends, neither Beltway Party is going to drain this swamp because to them it isn't a swamp. It's a protected wetland and their natural habitat. (laughs) They swim in it, they feed in it, they spawn in it. It's so interesting. That's the year 2000. Who did that sound like so many years later? Well, I'll tell you one of the people it sounded like. Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump was who I supported in 2000 uh, when I was involved in the Reform Party. And ultimately, Trump chose not to run in 2000. And um, Trump was kind of considered within the Reform Party the centrist alternative to Pat Buchanan. People can't believe it now because Trump is seen as this right winger. But not back then he wasn't. He was for uh, soaking the rich in terms of taxes. He was very pro-choice. He was, uh, I think he was pro-gay marriage. He was pro-single-payer health care and uh, was positioning himself as a center, centrist or center-left alternative to Pat Buchanan. And y- you know what Donald Trump does, right? Donald Trump killed Buchanan when they were both running for the Reform Party nomination together. Donald Trump, um, he repeated all these same Pat Buchanan stereotypes that you've heard a hundred times. He called him a Hitler lover. He said he doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the Jews. He is a representative of a right-wing wacko constituency. And it was so interesting to me that the very attacks that Trump made on Buchanan in 1999 and 2000 then were hurled at Trump 16 years later. It was so interesting to me how things come full circle that way. But 2011... Uh, I had an opportunity to fill in on the radio at another radio station. I didn't have my own show or anything. And I was filling in for Curtis Lewa. And Pat was at the top of his game, best-selling author, widely read columnist, and he was hosting a show and a contributor on MSNBC. And I really wanted to make a splash with this first show. And I reached out to Pat. And I said, Pat, Mr. Buchanan, I still call him Mr. Buchanan. Mr. Buchanan, you've got to help. I'm trying to make a splash. I'm trying to start a radio career. You know what it's like. And I really would love to have someone of your stature come on the show. And he made time in between MSNBC tapings to call in live at the time that I was on. And I said, all right, I'm going to make a big splash. I'm going to make a big news. This is 2011. Donald Trump is the leading Republican presidential candidate this time. And ultimately, he ended up not running in 2012. But he at that time was soaring in the polls. And I said, I'm going to make a big splash. I'm going to remind Pat about the things that Trump said about him 11, 12 years ago. And I'm going to get Pat to respond. And I know Pat. Pat's going to kill Trump. And I'm going to get a lot of attention and make a lot of news with Pat Buchanan responding to Donald Trump. Listen to what I said. I think this is my question included. And listen to Pat's response. Well, I think the his message of economic patriotism uh, that we that the Chinese and these Asian countries are laughing at us while they eat our lunch. That resonates very well with Americans, and it resonates with Democrat, uh, blue-collar Democrats, Reagan Democrats in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I think it's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is popular here, because he people say the guy gets it. He's a tough guy. He knows what's being done to us, and he knows some of these foreign guys are taking us to the cleaners. And so I think that's one of the reasons he's doing well. Now, will he run? I don't know. I mean, we all know that he, he's get, he gets a lot of attention. He's uh, controversial. He says what he thinks. I think people like that. I don't know. He'll have to take a look at how well, I mean, poll society is doing extremely well. I mean, if based on polls, if I had poll numbers like that, I'd be in the race right now. <laughs> well, I, you know but, what? It, uh, but, it, but he's got to take a look at, see what he, what he will look like once he gets in, see, and a lot of folks, their 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 top day is 
and the polls is when they get into the race. Yeah, no, I, I want to go down from there. Well, Fred Thompson, perfect example of that from uh, from 2008. But I want to ask you, back in 2000, you were the Reform Party nominee for president. A guy who flirted with getting in was Donald Trump. And in doing so, when he was in the midst of that flirtation, he was very critical of you, even giving interviews, uh, you know, really not on anything merited, but it, not on any policy issues, but it was personal. And he would say things like, uh, I guess he's an anti-Semite. He doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the Jews and not criticize you on anything substantive. Is he kind of doing that same thing now with Barack Obama? Uh, I don't know that he uh, he's not doing that. And and uh, he's been gracious to me since then. He's uh, so in other words, I, I've communicated with him and we put all that behind. us. Oh, well, that's I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that's and, it. Uh, and so I think what he's saying about uh, Obama, I think everything I've heard about Obama I mean, and in, in, in with one exception, is within the realm of legitimate criticism. The exception now, being the say, birther issue, right? Well, the people say the birther issue. Now, I thought that was such a class act um, way, not for me, uh, but for him to handle that. I thought the fact that he chose not to respond in kind, but because he viewed what Trump was saying as the right message for the country – and to say, look, we put all that behind us. I mean, if someone called me a Hitler lover, if someone said I didn't like the blacks and I didn't like the Jews, I'm liable to hold a grudge for more than 12 years. Not Pat Buchanan, because with Pat Buchanan, his philosophy, he was really, if I had to, uh, some people have described Pat as paleoconservative. Some people have described him as isolationist. I would describe Pat's life philosophy. Forget about his political philosophy, his life philosophy as being Catholic. Everything that he did in life was guided by an old-school, pre-Vatican II Catholic ideology. And the hallmark of that was forgiveness and forgiving and forgetting, and he always did. Uh, that was the first of many conversations that Pat and I have had over the, on the radio over the course of the last 11 years, and I hope we can have a few more. But um, a lot of folks wonder, how did Pat Buchanan get a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Pat Buchanan, this socially conservative warrior, what was it like for him at Columbia? Pat, I learned more in talking with you for 10 minutes than I did in years of college and graduate school. I appreciate it a great deal. Where'd you go to school? <laughs> New York University. I know you were a Columbia man. <laughs> I spent one year at Columbia. They didn't spot me until I got through. <laughs> um, a lot of Pat's legacy over the years has been negative. People have raised questions about what he said about World War II. Uh, a lot of people have raised questions about the things that he said about Israel. In a minute, I'm going to let you hear directly from him in some of the conversations that we've had over the years about what he thinks America's role in World War II was, and then you be the judge of whether he was right or whether he was wrong. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment on Pat Buchanan's retirement, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Although I will say, whatever I could say, whatever I could, whatever you could say, it pales in comparison to the right-on-the-money commentary that Chris Matthews did about Pat Buchanan in 2012. And if you want to see that, you can go to my Facebook page right now at facebook.com slash moranofan. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. From the great Jean Knight, who is celebrating her 80th birthday today, an R&B and soul singer from New Orleans and a legend, Mr. Big Stuff. This song, which is over 50 years old, can you imagine? 
is still um, it still resonates, still makes your foot tap just as well uh, today as it did in 1971. She's 80 years old today. Happy birthday, Jean Knight. We're going to try and get her on the show one of these days. We're talking a little bit about uh, the, Im- at least I'm talking about the impact that Pat Buchanan has had on America since the 1960s. And uh, I have been real privileged to be able to interview Pat many times over the years. And I've read all of his books. Some I like more than others. One of his most controversial books, probably his most controversial, not the one that got him fired from MSNBC, but one of his most controversial. And I have a signed copy of this book, actually, although it's personalized not to me, but to Don Imus. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think Bernard McGurk gave it to me uh, because he was a big Pat Buchanan fan and he wanted me to read it. I don't think he realized that it was signed, certainly not personalized to Imus, but he gave it to me and it's still proudly sitting on my shelf. But one of his most controversial book was admittedly revisionist history and it was called Churchill Hitler and the unnecessary war what is that war world war 2 world war 2 and he basically challenges churchill's role and by extension america's role in world war 2 and um i remember telling my friend mario duray who actually supported buchanan i think in 96 and 92 I remember telling Mario DeRay, you know, this is Pat's premise of this book, uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, is that, you know, it was an unnecessary war. We didn't need to get involved. And Mario DeRay said in the very DeRay-esque manner in which he speaks, he said, well, what was the United States supposed to do once Pearl Harbor was attacked? So what about Pearl Harbor? In 2020, this is... um, this, I think it was 2020. Yeah, it was on December 7th. We, I was doing this show, so you, some of you might remember this. On December 7th, I interviewed Pat Buchanan, and I asked him about America's culpability, if any, with respect to Pearl Harbor. What is your take on America's culpability, if any, in the run-up to the Pearl Harbor attack and FDR specifically? Well, I wrote in the book A Republic, Not an Empire about the run-up to Pearl Harbor and how it came about. I mean, the Japanese were on a rampage in Asia, but they brought in basically a a peace prime minister, Prince Kanoya, who wanted to cut a deal with the Americans rather than get into a war with them. And they made a number of efforts to do that. But the Americans, fearing what had happened at Munich and what became of Neville Chamberlain, didn't cut a deal with the Japanese, didn't talk to them. So then Tojo came in as the new prime minister and launched Pearl Harbor. Uh, one uh, one of the cabinet members for Roosevelt said, we got to make sure they're perceived as firing the first shot. So there were a number of folks right up going to Pearl Harbor who wanted somehow to get us into the war mainly against Nazi Germany, which had attacked Russia in the summer, or the Soviet Union. But there was a real, I mean, the idea that that the United States was, uh, I mean, just caught totally blind by the diplomacy is a mistake. A lot of people thought and felt that this was coming. There's a number of books have been written on it, whether or not FDR or members of the American government knew that the Japanese fleet was headed across the North Pacific. Some say we had broken the, we obviously had broken the diplomatic code. That's how FDR, Frank, uh, when he was, he knew Pearl Harbor, he got the Japanese note of 13 parts the night before Pearl Harbor and said, this means war. So they knew the that was coming, but did we have access to the naval code, which we eventually did later, when we had Midway? So that's the whole thing. It's a fascinating study, Frank. I've, I've been involved in it since I was a little kid, and my mm. father always believed Admiral Kimmel and General Short who were in Honolulu in command, had been really treated shabbily, not let in on the intelligence, and ultimately scapegoated. You can't have a discussion about World War II without discussing Churchill. And in his book, he's pretty tough on Churchill. And it's interesting, there are now five generations, almost four generations, of both American and British leaders that try to be Churchill. They invoke Churchillian rhetoric, use Churchillian language, uh, fancy themselves as Churchillian uh, characters. And um, I ask him about the dangers of that. 
uh, that Churchill worship. This is not from that same interview. And again, I'm jumping around here to try to string some sort of narrative structure together. Bear with me. Uh, This is from 2017 in which we talk, or 2016, I think, in which we talk about Churchill. Explain to me the dangers in the present day of this Churchill worship and everyone is Hitleritis. Well, the, 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 the dangers of the, of the Churchill cult, if you will, is the idea that we must stand up and defy our adversaries and, if necessary, go to war against them rather than to negotiate or appear to appease them. Chamberlain is the great villain. Munich is the great prototype of which, what was wrong, and Churchill is supposedly the great ideal of what was right. But Churchill, look at what Churchill did. He eventually appeased Stalin granting him all of Eastern Europe, whereas Chamberlain was what? Gave up the Sudetenland, for heaven's sakes, which was German, and the Sudetenlanders wanted to join Germany. Churchill took the country to war to save what? To rescue Czechoslovakia and save Poland? And that was my favorite thing to talk with Pat Buchanan about. It wasn't politics. It wasn't even foreign policy, which was right up there. It was history. And as much as I enjoyed talking with him about World War II and World War I and uh, all sorts of other things, the things that I most enjoyed talking with Pat on the radio about were the aspects of American history that he was an eyewitness to. And he wrote one of the greatest presidential history books of all times called The Greatest Comeback. It's all about his time with Richard Nixon in 1968. And uh, I talked to him a little bit about that 1968 campaign and how Nixon, who keep in mind, Nixon was um, defeated for president in 1960, comes back a couple of years later to run for governor of California. He's laughed off the stage as he's defeated for governor of California, does a press conference. He says, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And after losing a statewide office in his own home state, after losing the presidency, after being written off, ABC News, I think it was, did a whole TV special, the political, the obituary of Richard Nixon. He comes back and wins big. And the only guy, his very first hire, Nixon's very first hire, was Pat Buchanan. And that's what this book is all about. And we talked about that 68 campaign. The boss asked me to monitor President Johnson's speech on Vietnam on a car radio at LaGuardia Airport to brief him when he arrived back from visiting Julie at Smith. At the end of that speech, President Johnson suddenly announced that he would not run again. Four days after that political earthquake, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Uh, obviously, that was not one of our conversations, but that was an interesting recollection of uh, him going back and uh, spending that time with Nixon in 1968. And I look back at what our last conversation was on the radio, and it was back in April. And we were talking about the Ukraine situation, which is still very much in the news these days and very heated. And a lot of what I've come to believe on the on the Ukraine-Russia situation I'll be honest with you, I've learned from Pat's columns and from my talks with him over the years. And when we had this conversation back in April, the things that Pat was saying were just as controversial back then as they would be today. I think Putin, there's no doubt that he started this war, he ignited the war, but the table was set by the United States. What did we do after we won the Cold War with Russia? And Russia basically gave up the Warsaw Pact. The whole Soviet Union broke apart into 15 nations, and it sought a relationship with the United States. We moved our alliance into Central Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Then we moved it into Eastern Europe, into the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria. We added 14 new member states to NATO, and we were seeking to bring Ukraine into NATO, Ukraine an integral part of the Russian of the Russian uh, Federation and an integral part of the Soviet Union into our alliance, which is directed against them. I think Putin, frankly, saw us pushing forward, pushing, 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 and he said, I've got to stop them. So he ignited this war. So I think we've got to take a look at the kind of commitments we're making ourselves, which are imperiling the vital national security of the United States for causes that are not related to our vital national interests. Mm. Who rules in Kiev or who rules in Donetsk 
or who rules in Odessa is not a vital interest of the United States to justify any kind of war with a nuclear power of the magnitude of the Soviet Union or of Russia. As you could hear, and that was just a few months ago, and his voice wasn't nearly as strong as it was just a few years ago. But um, so that was back in uh, back in April. And then, you know, one of the things that really set him apart from a lot of conservatives in the Bush era, even though he'd run against Bush as a third party candidate, is, you know, it's difficult to imagine now. But back in 2002, 2003, the most um, the most popular thing in the world, especially on the right, was to be a cheerleader for the war in Iraq. And I think we know now what a disaster that war in Iraq was. I mean, we should not have been there. We should not have engaged in this. And um, it was a huge mistake on George W. Bush's part. And in my view, will be an irreparable stain on George W. Bush's legacy. And Buchanan, uh, along with Ron Paul and Bob Novak and a couple of others, said so at the time and I think have been proven right. If the war Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and the neocons brought to this country and put in place is coming to a disaster, and the disaster is occurring on the watch of Barack Hussein Obama. I don't think Obama's responsible for it. I do think the country agrees that we ought to get out of Afghanistan, we ought to get out of Iraq, we ought to stay out of Syria, we ought to stay out of Ukraine. But there's no doubt this is all coming down on his watch, John. But I think it's... uh, I think it's odd that they would they would try to blame Barack Obama for something he didn't start. That was from the uh, that was from the McLaughlin group. He was talking to John McLaughlin. So uh, if you want to comment, you can eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. One of the criticisms that has stayed with Pat Buchanan since pretty much nineteen ninety has been that he's anti-Semitic or that he's a racist. And I had uh, Tim Stanley, who's a British journalist and historian, on this show last year. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. And he wrote the best book about Pat Buchanan ever. It's called Crusader. And it was objective. uh, Very objective. Very heavily researched. You could tell he did a lot of interviews for it. And um, I asked Tim Stanley, and by the way, when I said this was the best book ever written about Pat Buchanan, I include the ones that Pat has written. I mean, Tim Stanley was incredible. So we did a whole interview about what was happening in Europe and on the world stage at the time. And then I asked him kind of towards the end, what about all these allegations of Pat Buchanan's anti-Semitism? Is there anything to it? As someone that has looked at Pat's work and his political career, do you think there's any truth to those allegations of anti-Semitism? I don't think he's personally anti-Semitic, no. I think that on uh, issues which are touched by the problem of anti-Semitism, he has sometimes taken positions which leave him open to the charge of that. That sounds like a very political and diplomatic answer, but I think it is that complicated that he's been drawn into issues where he's taken a position where he's found himself on the side of people who are anti-Semitic. Now, for for example, Israel. Uh, People who are critical of Israel can be critical for a laundry list of reasons, good and bad, and they can be motivated by anti-Semitism. They can be motivated by care and concern for Palestinians. Um, In the course of doing that, they may well find themselves on the side of bad people, and they they may find themselves inadvertently giving courage and moral support to bad people because that's the position they've taken. Uh, So I, I think that's I think that's how that charge arises Mm. in the case of Pat Buchanan. Is he personally prejudiced and bigoted? I saw no evidence of it. And um, that's one of the charges about Pat that really so upsets me. Uh, Because, look, he has made some remarks, uh, both in writing, but really just in writing, actually, that if you look at them uh, on their face without the context, it does look bad. It does look... Um, as if there's some prejudice to him. I don't believe there's a prejudice bone in his body. And he's um, he has a lot of Jewish friends. He's worked with a lot of Jewish folks, a lot of minority folks uh, for 50 years. And to me, I think a lot of that criticism of anti-Semitism towards Pat was really from people that disagreed with him. And they used it, and I see this with so many people these days, they used it as a way to sort of undercut his authority 
and his expertise on a given issue rather than respond to the merits of whatever issue he was talking about. So um, I think there's a big difference between somebody being personally bigoted and not patronizing a doctor or a broker because that doctor or broker is Jewish or uh, Hispanic or whatever the case may be, and somebody taking policy positions that you might not agree with. And I think a lot of Pat's uh, criticism uh, is based on policy issues that people don't agree with and the way that he expressed them. And, you know, Nixon, who was like a father to Pat Buchanan, Nixon was asked about Pat Buchanan. And keep in mind, Nixon did not support Pat Buchanan for president. He supported George George H.W. Bush. And he still defended Pat as not being an anti-Semite. He said of Pat Buchanan, uh, he said, this is while he's backing Pat's opponent. So um, he said of Pat Buchanan, well, if he's an anti-Semite, he's the only anti-Semite that I knew of that was taking Israel's side during the Six-Day War. Nixon said that publicly. Nixon said there was no greater advocate for American support of Israel in the 60s and 70s than Pat Buchanan. And internally, when there were debates about how to handle this in the Nixon administration, the Six-Day War and so forth, um, Pat was always steadfast on the side of Israel. Now, later on, it's true Pat did come to support an independent Palestinian state. You know what? A lot of people do. That doesn't make them... Um, that doesn't make them anti-Semitic. And I thought that I've always thought that was an incredibly unfair charge of Pat over the years. This is the last clip that I'll play, and I appreciate you indulging me in this. It's not every day your favorite columnist retires. Um, this is six years ago. One of the great lessons that I've taken in terms of a Buchanan-esque view on foreign policy has been that this idea that democracies are always good is bogus. It's basically hogwash, okay? Um, And this really, it's an extension of the Bush doctrine. This Bush doctrine thinking that we need to democratize the world, it's total BS, And it doesn't serve America's interest. You know, Pat Buchanan was asked by me and others over the years, what do you think of this Donald Trump America first philosophy? And Buchanan would say, well, I'm for America first, America second, America third, and America fourth. And if that's your philosophy, and it happens to be mine, then that doesn't always mean going all over the world to try to uh, wave the magic wand of democracy and turn these autocracies into democracies. We spoke six years ago on the subject of uh, liberal democracy evangelism, for lack of a better word. Let me end with this, uh, Mr. Buchanan. You uh, wrote recently a column about uh, liberal democracy asking if it's dead, uh, or at least asking if it's an endangered species. What do you mean when you say liberal democracy, and why do you think it might be an endangered species? Well, I think when you see what's happening in in Europe, for example, many of the countries over there, because of the immigration, it threatens the, many feel it threatens the the natural integrity of their population and dramatic dramatic change in the character of the nation. They are electing leaders who will really defy the European Union and really reprotect their borders. And in Hungary and places like that, they've ta- they've they've elevated leaders who really don't believe in the idea for example, of the sort of the liberal democracy we have, people are beginning to believe that this back and forth and fighting with each other the way we did in the last election, that the strong man leader is a better role in the future. And even democratic capitalism, what they at the end of the Cold War, every, Fukuyama wrote, that's the future of everyone. But it's not that. You've seen authoritarian capitalism rise in Russia and China, and now we have it in Turkey, and now you have it in Egypt, and now you have it in the Philippines. What is the trend in the future? It is. It seems to me less and less, you know, uh, the liberal democracy basically that we have, and much more of a, an authoritarian type government, looks to me the future of mankind. Bright man.
Brilliant man, somebody that I've learned a lot from. And uh, thankfully, he's not dead. He's just retiring. Uh, but uh, I'm going to miss him as a columnist. As I said yesterday, his column was the, as soon as it hit my email box, that was the first one. I stopped whatever I was doing so that I could read it uh, immediately. And uh, if he ran for president today, I'd be a proud member of the Buchanan Brigade, even though we disagree on all sorts of social issues, all sorts of issues, period. You know, um, he was a, a, a longtime and is a longtime social conservative. I'm not. Um, you know, he was very opposed to gay marriage. You know, I, I was always for gay marriage. You go down the line, I tend to be pretty libertarian on most social issues, and at least in his heyday of running for president, that was not Pat's philosophy at all. Uh, but uh, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to trade, when it comes to borders, when it comes to not getting involved in these foreign wars, uh, I am a Buchanan brigadier through and through. You want to comment, you can. Otherwise, we'll move on. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With the great guitar work of Andrew Wrigley, Ridgely, excuse me, who is 59 years old today. Happy birthday, Andrew Ridgely. Uh, I am a big fan of Wham. Always have been. All right. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well at uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I, I linked to that uh, Chris Matthews commentary and you can watch it if you want ian mcleod said i can't listen to that moron's drivel now it's not clear whether ian is talking about me whether he's talking about chris matthews or the whether he's talking about pat buchanan i do think it's just one of us because it's moron apostrophe s rather than those morons apostrophe m-o-r-n-s apostrophe drivel Alan Ang uh, commenting, when I was in high school in the early 90s, I would get off the bus one strip, one stop earlier every Wednesday to buy the New York Post so I could read Pat Buchanan's column. I certainly uh, can appreciate that. Absolutely. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on Pat Buchanan's retirement. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Joe. Hey, uh, Frank. Hey. Uh the Pat Buchanan story. Uh, first, I, I loved uh, the McLaughlin Group. That was a great show Sunday mornings, and he was he was fun to watch. Uh, he brought it a little more lively. Um, so I, I definitely liked your uh, your send off for him when he retired. Thank you. Um, and then just I wanted to, to comment just on the breadth of the stuff you cover. Uh, I explained it to my wife the next morning because I work nights. I'll tell her what I heard. I told her about the pizza tip. Uh, she's like hardcore Italian, and she was like, "Really? You know, you don't get a cut?" I was like, "No, nah, try. Let's try what uh, what he said." Um, just the things you cover with the different groups of people. Uh, Doctor Sky, the uh, the artist tonight was just like extremely interesting. You very rarely put something on that uh, puts me to, puts me to sleep. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Joe. That's so nice of you. Thank you. I uh, hopefully uh, other people feel the, the same way. Uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. And you got to let me know how your wife finds that uh, the new style of uncut pizza. I, I will. I call back every once in a while. I'll let you know. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. That's awfully nice. You know, it's funny. My uh, the woman who delivers my newspaper, Donna, um, she said to me. Recently, she said almost the same thing. She said, you know, even when you do something that I'm sure I'm not going to be interested in, you find a way to make it interesting. And that's really the um, 
you know, I, I don't pretend to be the smartest guy on radio, certainly don't pretend to be the most entertaining or the funniest or the, certainly not the best looking. Uh, but uh, there, if there's one thing that uh, I think our show can lay claim to is that we are the most interesting show and we do cover the largest diversity of topics on anywhere on radio. And that's uh, that's something, a, a label that I'll wear very proudly. 800-848-9222. Andy is in New Jersey. Hello, Andy. Hey, how you doing? I'm just wondering what uh, Pat's view would have been on the European Union and combi- and combi- and world government and combining Canada, Mexico, and the United States as a new regional government. Because I saw, if you went on YouTube and, and, and searched Cronkite Hillary, World Federalist, you'll see at the 540 mark, Cronkite said, we Americans are going to have to yield up our sovereignty and it's going to be a bitter pill. Then he praised yeah. George Soros. And then Hillary came on at the yeah, end and Andy, said, this so is our I new think, leader. Thank you, Andy. I think if you watch that... Um... 1992 speech where he uses the term New World Order, and that was the first time I ever heard it, was in that 1992 RNC speech. I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I mean, I think uh, NAFTA was the beginning of American movement of border erasure. Now, NAFTA economically, not culturally, not legally, but economically, does allow the United States, Canada, and Mexico to be treated like one country. And there was nobody... Uh, the, you know, the the four steadfast opponents to NAFTA back in, in the 90s, early 90s, was Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, Ralph Nader, and Jesse Jackson. Left, right, center. And they went to D.C. and uh, they testified before Congress, a Congress that was bought off by multinational corporations. And uh, they called these guys, when they went up there, the Halloween Coalition. Left, Nader, Left, Jackson, Center, Perot, right, Buchanan. And these guys were mocked. They were mocked as being behind the times. And Al Gore, remember, debated uh, Ross Perot on Larry King's show on the NAFTA issue. And ultimately, the globalists won that round. And uh, I think that's kind of, you know, we, we see the results of that, right? And I think a lot of the rhetoric that Trump implored and a lot of the rhetoric that Bernie Sanders implored opposing the TPP, in 2016, is straight out of the Buchanan Nader Perot playbook. 800 848 Billy, I don't want to cut you off after 20 seconds. So if you want to hold, please continue to hold. We'll get to you first after the top of the hour. And we'll discuss locker etiquette uh, when we come back. Uh, and uh, a we'll do the AC report. We have a really interesting guest for the AC report, Dave Kosky is going to be here. He's been a media pro. He's worked for the 76ers and a bunch of casinos. I'm looking forward to it. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it.